think most of us are not worried about getting any Hall of Fames in heaven, just want to get there. Think about that sometimes when we finally arrive, it's going to be over. No more tears. This on? Yeah, no more pain. No more death. No more sickness. No more taxes. See, I knew I'd get the biggest amen on that. Hebrews 11, let's just thank God for the word tonight. Father, we thank you for this time of worship. I thank you for those people who are here tonight, Lord, and I pray that our hearts and our minds would be alert, we'd be open to the deposit of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, take what you have prepared for us tonight out of Hebrews 11 and drive it deep in our hearts. Father, let it change us from the inside out so we can be more like Jesus. Let these principles never leave us, but help them, Lord God, as we learn some facts about a, a person who is in the Hall of Fame of Faith, who was an imperfect man, it should give us hope, Lord God, that even in our imperfections, we can please you and we can find favor in your sight. I ask that in Jesus' name, amen. So Hebrews 11.32, and what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, or of David and Samuel and the prophets. So we went through a few judges here. We looked at Gideon. We looked at Barak, Samson. Uh, Barak was an assistant judge. Deborah was really the judge. Barak was the, the muscle to her spiritual uh, leadership. Jephthah, we learned all about him. We talked about Samson. We skipped David, and we went to Samuel. We looked at Samuel last week. Samuel, the first prophet, the last judge, an amazing man of God, uh, served God with distinction, uh, didn't go to the right or the left, a great role model for the people of God and for leadership. Uh, we're going to look at David today because we skipped over David. We wanted to finish the judges. <clears throat> David wasn't a judge. David was a king. He wasn't the first king, but he was God's first choice. Amen? The people chose Saul, uh, but God chose David. We're going to look at David. We finished up the judges, and we, we know why they're in the Hall of Fame of Faith. Now, this period of the judges gives ways to the king. Now, we're not going to talk about Saul because Saul's not in the Hall of Fame of Faith. In fact, if you study the life of Saul, we're not sure if Saul is in heaven. At the end of his life, God refused to even talk to him. So realize a good start with all the people's approval doesn't ensure a good ending. Have you ever seen people who had a really good start, but they didn't have the integrity to maintain it? Come on, come on, talk back to me Wednesday night. Some of the people aren't here because it's warm outside. They're getting their beauty, sun, and the vitamin D. So I need you to be extra loud. So this period of the judges gives ways to the king. Uh, Samuel told the people, God will lead you. You don't need a king. They wouldn't listen to him. They argued with him. Finally, God told them, give them what they want. They gave, they picked Saul. He was a hot mess from the beginning because of his vanity and disobedience. He plunged the nation into turmoil and all kinds of distractions. Saul was the quintessential political figurehead. He was not spiritual enough to lead people spiritually, but he wanted the acceptance and the favor and the accolades of the people. He cared more about the opinions of people than he did about executing the will of the Lord. That's a good lesson for us to understand why. Because none of us like 
to be on the wrong side of people. Nobody likes to be public enemy number one. No one wants to be attacked and ostracized. We all kind of want to fit in to some degree. Can I get an amen? Amen. If you're just like one of these people who doesn't want to fit in and, you know, is always looking for, you know, to, to make arguments and fights and division, you probably need to up your medication. Because, you know what, that's really not what God wants us to do. Yet, Saul cared so much about the people and what they thought and, and, and taking opinion polls and who's going to do what, that he just decided, well, I'm going to make the people happy and I'm not going to obey God. Now you say, Pastor, we're talking about David. Why are you mentioning Saul? You can't talk about David without Saul. David is a byproduct of someone who grew up under Saul's leadership. And, you know, you understand that here's Saul doing all the wrong things and he's the people's choice, yet God uses Samuel the prophet to pick another king while Saul is still on the throne. Now, while Saul listened to Samuel's words, he didn't obey them. David listened to Samuel and he obeyed him. When Samuel passed on, Nathan the prophet stepped in. Uh, he was not just a hearer, David. He was someone who was obedient. That's a lesson for us. So there's so much we can say about David. I'm going to jump right in, and we're going to look at 15 facts about David. You know, we could literally spend weeks and weeks here. There, there's so much written about him. There's so much to learn from him. But let me give you the, the 15 facts here that are the highlights of his life that would say, were these were some of the things about his character that we need to be aware of. And these are some of the things that got him into the Hall of Fame of Faith. Number one, David was the son of Jesse. He was born in Judah at about 1,000 B.C. The fact that David's from Judah plays into him making Jerusalem uh, his capital city. So in Judah is Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is a very important city to God, and it was a very important city to David. The fact that God chose a man from Judah, and he makes Bethlehem his cap. I mean, he makes uh, Jerusalem his capital here is very significant. You see, David had a heart after God, and so he had affection for the things that God had affection for. Someone say amen. The more we want to please God, the more we have a heart after God, the more we get to know God by, by discovering him through his word and, and, and feeling his presence, the more we're going to have a heart after the things that God cares about. God doesn't care about how much money you have in the bank, how new your car is, if your mortgage is paid off. He really cares if you want what he wants for you, if you, if you really want him more than all those other things. And so David had that kind of heart. He was from Judah. He makes Jerusalem the capital city. Uh, that's something that pleases the Lord. It's the focal point of the region, Jerusalem. Still to this day, it is the focal point of the world's three major religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, all have a stake in Jerusalem. They all want a piece of it. They all want to control that holy city. But guess what? It belongs to God, and God is going to control it, and man is not going to control it. So we see drama unfolding in the Middle East. Hopefully, if you can stop looking at your phone and playing games long enough, you'll realize current events are winding up, and the end times are upon us, and things are falling into place, Amen. You know, we're playing words with friends, and, and, and Russia's getting ready for war. They're massing on the border of Ukraine. Now, Ezekiel 38 is about to fall in place. This is free, by the way. It's not my notes. This is free stuff here. So, you know, the eschatological things are happening. Keep your eyes open. Be aware. Look for his coming. Don't be distracted. David was the son of Jesse, born in Judah, and that's significant. Number two, 
David was the great-grandchild of Boaz and Ruth. We know uh, the, the book of Ruth, the story of Ruth, is one that's endearing to us, powerful Old Testament uh, story. The theme of the book of Ruth is the kinsman redeemer. What is that? Boaz, being a kinsman to Ruth, redeems her. She's poor. She's, she's destitute. She's gleaning in the field. Boaz comes in, and he, he acts as a savior to her, saves her from her poverty, saves her from her shame, and rescues her and, and loves her. So the theme of Ruth is what? The kinsman redeemer. There's also, you know, Jesus becomes uh, the kinsman redeemer in the sense that he comes through David's line, and he doesn't just redeem a person from destitution. He redeems the whole entire world on the cross, Amen. And so we see that theme of kinsman redeemer in the lineage of David. He is the great-grandchild of Boaz and Ruth. Uh, in some ways, David, like a lot of leadership in the Old Testament, was a, a forerunner or a type of Christ, become a redeemer of Israel. When, when David takes over Israel, Saul has really messed it up. If you've ever suffered the cleanup of bad leadership, if you've ever had to clean up or, or untie or, 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 or regenerate things that were destroyed through bad leadership, you know what a daunting task it could be. Saul messed up Israel, and David ruled a divided kingdom. Why? Because half of the kingdom was still loyal to Saul. It says a lot about people who are loyal to the wicked. It says a lot about people who are loyal to godlessness when it's so obvious. I, I see it. I have no idea why people align themselves with certain things that are obviously wicked, that are obviously ungodly, people who call themselves Christians. Yet even in Israel's history, half of the nation of Israel at that time still wanted Saul, the wicked, ungodly king, and they rejected David. But David becomes a savior in a sense, a kinsman redeemer in a sense to Israel. He tries to bring unity. He tries to bring healing. Uh, he brings Israel back to God. He establishes godliness in Israel. He establishes worship. He wants to build a temple, but Solomon's going to do that. So David redeems. Then Jesus comes through his lineage, and Jesus redeems. Number three, the third thing, we need to know about David is this. David is the youngest son of Jesse, and he has seven brothers. I don't know if you uh, know much about sibling rivalries, but seven brothers, that's going to be trouble. And it was trouble, and there was a lot of sibling rivalry. You know, my brother and I, we get along, uh, but I see a lot of other brothers that don't. And David's brothers were very jealous of him. And he was the youngest, you know, the youngest. Uh, God always would give favor in the Old Testament to what? The oldest, the firstborn. Yet we see many times that God doesn't pick, uh, you know, who thinks they should be picked. He picks the one who has a heart after him. So David is the youngest of seven brothers. There's a lot of sibling rivalry there. He was in no way the heir of, of anything Jesse had or, or anything in the kingdom. He was the least. He was the last. When you're the youngest, you know, and you got seven other guys in front of you, and these guys were... You know, apparently they were, they were no joke. They were formidable. They were good-looking. They were, they were a lot like Saul in, in ways that they were handsome and tall, and they were kind of everything that David wasn't. Uh, you know, the firstborn of David's brothers was Eliab, and Eliab was to get 
all the inheritance. Now, God doesn't choose Eliab when, when Samuel comes to pick a king out of Jesse's son. He skips over him. But you know what? God doesn't choose according to custom or tradition. He goes by character. Now, even Samuel the prophet had to be reminded of this when he was going to anoint one of Jesse's sons. Listen to 1 Samuel 16, 6 through 7. It says, so it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. This is the prophet Samuel. He sees all the brothers lined up. David's not even there. He looks at the oldest one and he looks at him and he's like, wow, you know, this guy obviously was a specimen. He, maybe he looked kingly. Maybe he was well-built, handsome. We don't know, but he says, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. Listen to what the Lord said to Samuel. Do not look at his appearance or his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Wow. You see how much of a predisposition we have to judge things by the exterior? That even the prophet Samuel, a, a godly man who spoke the word of God and was, you know, was dead on and hearing the voice of the Lord, even he at first was like, this has got to be the guy. Look at him. He looks like a king. If you, you know, open up the encyclopedia and look up king, they got a picture of this guy. But God says, no, don't, you know, don't choose with your eyes. That was Samson's problem. He chose with his eyes, amen? God doesn't pick like that. So David has a bunch of brothers. He's going to have interactions with them. They're going to be standing before Goliath, and they're going to be chicken, but David's going <laughs> David's to go in there and embarrass all of them. But realize there was a lot of sibling rivalry. There was a lot of obstacles for David. In fact, in this lineup here, you know that David wasn't even there. Jesse left him out with the sheep. He didn't even consider that he could be the one that God would anoint. Number four, David was from Bethlehem. Luke 2.4 tells us that Bethlehem is known as the town of David. Uh, David becomes the savior of Israel in the sense where he brings them back to God and he, he brings them back in line with the things of God where Saul had taken them off course. David becomes a kinsman redeemer or a savior, uh, but Jesus comes out of Bethlehem and there again, David as a type of Christ. While David uh, saves Israel and brings them back into line, Jesus saves the world by bringing us the opportunity to have salvation through the cross, amen? And I want you to see the parallels between David and Jesus and the fact that Jesus comes through the Davidic line and it's, you know, it's, you know we're seeing like little things about his character here that reflect godliness. Now, David was obviously not the Messiah, but, and, and he did have a lot of flaws. We're going to talk about them. But he did resemble the character of Christ in a lot of things that he did. So he's the youngest of seven. He's from Bethlehem. And number five, David was anointed by God. We, we used to joke with each other in Bible school, you know, that there were some people that were self-appointed and self-anointed. You ever met people like that? They, well, who put you in charge? I put myself in charge. Well, you know, well, how did you do that? And like, do you ever wonder... Sometimes maybe where you work or in, you know, in, in anything that you're involved in, how some people get in charge. You ever wonder, like, who do they have pictures of doing compromising things, you know? I mean, like, they're not diligent, they're not skilled, they're not intelligent, but they're in charge. The people who are not getting what I'm saying, that's you. Are you in charge? You're like, what is he talking about? But <laughs> David was put there by God. 
Self-anointed, self-appointed doesn't work. If you're ever under a person like that and, and they're your leader, you're gonna suffer. And it's gonna be hard for you. I see people, you know, there, there are some ministries and some ministers and some even entire denominations now that have walked away from the, the truth of God's word that if you're involved in that, you should run away screaming as if you were on fire. Smile a little bit, it's good for you. You look so serious. I mean, like, I see people in some of these churches that are ordaining homosexual clergy, and they're saying that the Bible's not true, and, 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 and Jesus didn't rise. And I mean, there's, it's crazy. And, like, what are people doing in those churches? Dying. Self-anointed, self-appointed doesn't work, but God-anointed, God-appointed, it works every time. In 1 Samuel 16, 13, we see that there are leaders who are picked by God, and then he anoints them. And, you know, there are some leaders who are anointed, but they don't walk in their anointing. And there are some leaders that are anointed, and they walk in it. See, God, God doesn't, God chooses who he chooses, but we're not robots. Some people are anointed, some people are called, and yet they, you know, for whatever reason, they don't walk in their anointing. Now, that's a sad thing. Saul was anointed too. Do you know Samuel anointed Saul just as he anointed David. In fact, Samuel poured the oil over David while Saul was still on the throne. What was the difference between Saul and David? Saul didn't walk in his anointing, and David did. And that makes all the difference. Understand something. When God selects you, when God sanctifies you, when he sets you apart... And, and he pours that oil over you and activates your gifts. You have a choice right then. Are you going to do what God's called you to do or are you going to do your own thing? It's not enough to be anointed. You've got to be obedient. It's not enough to be gifted. You've got to have integrity. I've seen so many people with gifts and, you know, and, and, and skill and wisdom, yet no integrity. It's quiet because it's sobering. And we've all seen the ministries tumble and fall, and we've all seen the names that, you know, have been exposed and, and brought shame to the body of Christ, and we don't revel in that. But we pray that when God selects and anoints leaders, that they walk in their anointing and he keeps them safe from the distractions of the enemy. David was anointed by God, and he walked in his anointing. Number six, David was a shepherd by trade. That was his job. In fact, when they were anointing, when Samuel was supposed to pick out a king, you know, and they had all the brothers there, there was one guy who was still with the sheep, and that was David. And you know why he was with the sheep? Because he was a true shepherd. The other guys were like, no, 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 I want to get online. I want to get this. I want to get that. You know, but David was with the sheep. And, and you know, you might think, well, Shepherd, you know, that, that sounds like, you know, not a very important job. And truly, in that time and day, shepherds were looked down on as like, you know, kind of like low class. And they weren't esteemed very well. I mean, if you were a shepherd, uh, you know, it was kind of like you were the dregs of society in a way. It was, it was a lowly job in the view of that culture. But I want to say something about shepherding. Shepherding sheep prepares people for leadership. Throughout the Old Testament, God used people who were involved in being shepherds. Why? Because learning to care and, 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 and watch out for and pay attention to sheep will really prepare you to deal with people. Now, you've heard me say this before, and it's true. Sheep are not the smartest animals. You know, if you were shepherding 
foxes or cats or something a little bit more intelligent. I mean, sheep, uh, there was just a thing on the internet. Some of you probably saw a, 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 a shepherd was pulling a sheep out of a crack in the rock. He got stuck and he pulls him out. And as soon as he pulls him out, he takes two jumps and jumps back in. My wife and I are laughing. It's like, man, things are stupid. And then you're like, oh. God said, we like sheep have gone astray. Bad. But God takes David, and he's a shepherd, and shepherding sheep prepares him for dealing with people. It prepares him for ministry. Think about Moses. Moses was a prince in Egypt, well-educated, well-fed, you know, knew all these things, brought up with a silver spoon in his mouth. God takes him out of there and says, no, you're not ready for leadership. You're going to watch sheep in the desert for 40 years. Then that's going to prepare you. You see, you see the, the, the motif here is that, you know, God wants people who will care for others and lay down their lives. Now, you know, there are some things about uh, David being a shepherd that proved him for ministry. In fact, when he stood before Goliath, he said, I have killed the lion and the bear. And he gave a testimony. Well, where did he do that? You know, he did that when he was out in the back 40 tending the sheep and a lion comes and he grabs it by the mane and he kills it and a bear comes and he kills it. Now realize uh, killing a lion and a bear with modern firearms and stuff, that's a, that's a big enough task. You're killing them with a sword or a spear or a shepherd's crook. I mean, that's, that's big time stuff right there. And some of you are thinking, no, I could do it. But, you know, he'd proven himself. Where did he learn that? Being a shepherd. See, more important that, that he killed the lion and the bear was this, that he was willing to risk his life for the sheep. That's what God wants in leadership. Do you want to lead? Do you want to, you want to do something significant in the, in the kingdom? You have got to be willing to lay down your life for others, to risk yourself. On Sunday, I said, you know, to be a Christian, it takes risk. Some of us were just playing it too safe. We're scared of everything. Where's our faith? David was willing to risk his life for the sheep. You know, there's a lot of shepherds that would have saw the bear coming and looked at him and go, well, it don't look like he'll eat too much. See the lion coming, ah, you know, I'll lose a few, gain a few. You know, we're going to have lamb soon. Some people would make excuses. Some people would run away from that, but David didn't. And he defended the sheep and he loved the sheep and he cared for them. And God used the shepherd to become the greatest king in Israel's history. Number seven, David was a musician. Some people think David played the harp, but it's not true. He had an electric guitar. But in all honesty, David was a skilled musician. He did play the harp. He did play it skillfully. Uh, he played under the anointing. Notice that he's anointed, and his anointing touches everything he does. He put the time in to become skillful at his instrument, but that's not what you know. That's not what made him valuable. It was the anointing when he played. Now, what actually got him out of the pasture with the sheep and into the palace with Saul was his ability to play skillfully under the anointing. Because Saul was tormented by an evil spirit, and when David played under the anointing, it drove the evil spirit away. So the only relief Saul could get was to take this shepherd boy who could really play the harp with the anointing and bring him into the palace. You see, David's skill and David's ability, coupled with the anointing that God 
foot on him, made him upwardly mobile. It got him from, you know, the field into the palace. And that's how he got his foot in the door there. And God is bringing him in and promoting him. David uh, played skillfully because he spent the time to develop that skill. But never forget, no matter how skilled we are at an instrument or at anything, it's the anointing that breaks the yoke. Someone say amen. Later on as king, David would prove to be a worshiper. He would elevate worship. He even commissioned the building of musical instruments to be used for worship. Many people don't know that about David, but he, you know, he invented and, and commissioned these guys. What Make instruments for what? To worship God. What are instruments for? Why do we have instruments here? Well, you know, they're not for glorifying sin. They're not for, you know, making people, you know, uh, feel a certain way or changing the mood. Music is powerful, but music and instruments were designed for worship. Think about how the world has hijacked music and counterfeited it and used it to glorify sin. As Christians, we need to learn to play skillfully and to write anointed music and to use our anointing, amen? If you have gifts out there, if you, if you, well, I wish I could play this, I wish I could play that, well, stop wishing and start practicing, amen? Get yourself a something, I don't know, but put a, you know, get a kazoo, I don't know what, get something, but make music unto the Lord, amen? Uh, David's musicianship uh, is legendary and uh, it got him where he needed to go. He elevated worship. He had instruments built. And in a lot of ways, we can probably trace modern worship back to him. He was a, he was a worshiper. Uh, number eight, not only was David a musician, he was an anointed songwriter. M- many people don't realize, but David wrote nearly half of the Psalms. Psalms are songs that, you know, are, are sung to the Lord. They're a format of, of songs. And there again, David not only played his instrument skillfully, but obviously, you know, he was skillful and anointed musician and a lyricist. And, and with that anointing, again, remember, you know, anybody can, can make a song up, but when you have a, a song that comes through you by the Holy Spirit to the point where it becomes part of the word of God, that's the anointing. Half of the Psalms came through David. David is skilled not only as a musician, but as a songwriter. And there again, these are things in the body of Christ that, you know, many times we don't emphasize these things enough. You know, we have a few people do some things, but we should cultivate the talent that God's given us, amen? And I encourage you, you know, write things down, write lyrics, let the Holy Spirit pour through you. You never know what God could do with you. You think, well, where do all these Christian songs come from? From people who discipline their gifts and tap into the anointing and allow the Holy Spirit to flow through them, Amen. Half of the Psalms, that's, that's quite an accomplishment. 73 of them, to be exact. He wrote, and they came through him by the Holy Spirit, and they make it into Scripture and become the Word of God. Number nine, are you, are you surviving out there? David was a skilled warrior. Many of us know this because the, the Goliath thing is, is a big part of David, and everybody knows about David and Goliath. But remember, I said he killed the lion and the bear, and that was impressive enough. But he also had the confidence and the courage to face off against Goliath when everyone else was scared. Here's this shepherd boy who killed a lion and a bear, and he comes in bringing food for his brothers at the battle, and he sees this giant out there defying the armies of the living God, taunting the people of God, and cursing the God of heaven and earth. 
And what does David do? He doesn't shrink back. He doesn't tap into the fear that's all around him. He, you know, he starts asking questions, and he, he, he's looking at this guy, and he's thinking, you know, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? It's almost like he doesn't see his size, and he doesn't see, you know, what a skilled warrior Goliath is. All he sees is that this guy is cursing the God of heaven and earth. And he's a mighty warrior, David, from, from the jump street. You know, I mean, if, you, if you're killing lions and bears while you're watching sheep, you know, you've got some skills there. And there again, I think David's anointing, too, touched him in this area. He, he has the courage to face off with Goliath when everyone else is scared. And we know what happened with that. That was another thing that got him from the back 40 into the palace. But more happens after Goliath. He's proven in battle as he leads men in Saul's army. The fighting men love him. Listen to 1 Samuel 18, 5 through 7. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely. There's a good idea. And Saul set him over the men of war, and he, accepted, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servant. Now it happened as they were coming home when David returned from the slaughter of the Philistines that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. So the women sang and danced and said, Saul has slayed his thousands, but David has slayed his ten thousands. I don't know what you think about that, but that's a pretty good accolade, right? That proves David's a mighty warrior. It doesn't make the king happy. Be careful who you let sing about you. But he was so accomplished in battle, and the fighting men loved him. Uh, He becomes one of the most successful military leaders in Israel's history, and he establishes Israel as a formidable nation that other nations don't want to mess with. So understand... uh, David is this skilled warrior, and that's part of who he is. You see the character of this guy. You see the attributes. He's, he's, a, he's a warrior. He's a fighting man. He's a musician. He's a worshiper. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of good things about him. He's a shepherd. He, he cares uh, for people. He, he's willing to lay his life down for the sheep. These are all good things. Now, I want to shift gears a little bit. In the, interest of, in the interest of honesty, I want to share some of David's flaws because we know he had some flaws. You know, many times we look at people in the Bible and we kind of maybe gloss over their flaws and we kind of idolize them or put them on a pedestal. We need to see the real picture, amen? Only two people want to see the real picture? You want, the rest of you all lie. David never did anything wrong. He was perfect. It was Bathsheba's fault, you know, it wasn't. All right, so let's talk about the fact that, number 10, David was a polygamist. Now, In the Old Testament there, because they wanted a king and because they wanted to be like other nations, they followed the cultural uh, ramifications of other nations. Now, David had hundreds of concubines, and he had at least eight wives that we know about. You say, but it it was okay. You know, God, God allowed it. God allowed it, but it wasn't God's best. And I guarantee you this, if you try it in the New Testament, you're gonna get in a whole lot of trouble. Some things that... God tolerated in the Old Testament were because of the culture, were because of the hardness of people's heart, because they wanted to be like the culture around them. But this wasn't God's best. He has eight wives. He has Ahinaham, Abigail, Machak, Haggith, Abital, Egla, Michael, and Bathsheba. That's eight wives that we know about that Scripture accounts of. He had hundreds of concubines. This was a cultural construct 
you know, it was not the will of God, yet God somehow allowed it, covered it by grace. But, you know, you think of the patriarchs. Jacob had four women that the 12 tribes came out of. Some of these things in the Old Testament are confusing the way they work. We, we're not sure how God tolerated some of those things, but this is definitely not a good thing for David because all these women in his life, uh, you know, they become a distraction to him. They become some of the reason he doesn't go out to fight anymore. Uh, obviously, Bathsheba uh, catches his attention when he should be out at war. He's up on the roof looking at people bathing. David had issue with women. Even when he was old and he was not feeling well, he was sick, they put a young maiden in his bed to warm him up. So this guy had some issues with the ladies. Are you uncomfortable yet? I'm just telling you the truth. Uh, this is not a good thing for David, and it becomes a distraction to him. Number 11, David committed adultery. And whether we like to admit it or not, whether we like to think about it or not, David was an adulterer. When you cross that line, that's an ugly line to cross. He lusted after another man's wife. He looked at Bathsheba when she should have had privacy. He, and then he looked at her, and that was bad enough to look. But then he lusted for her in his heart, and he sent his men to fetch her for him. Now you can bet your last nickel he didn't want to play Monopoly with her. He lusted after her and he brings her, he brings another man's wife into his palace and he sleeps with her and he gets her pregnant. There's, you know, when I study this and when I look at this, honestly, there's a lot of things I love about David, but this, this one transgression here really breaks my heart. It actually makes me angry because he had all these wives and he had all these concubines and the prophet Nathan is going to call him on it eventually. But he, he looks at somebody else and he says, I, I want her and he takes her. It's the worst. It's the absolute worst. And David crossed that line and he did it. The byproduct of David's adulterous affair is a baby who eventually dies. Then he has a very heated encounter with the prophet Nathan who, who lambastes him and shows him what a wicked thing he's done. And then David eventually repents, but the, the judgment is that the sword will never depart from his house. Realize, God will still, you know, we mess up, we cross lines, we know we shouldn't. God will still love us, God will still save us, but you know what? There's always a penalty for sin. If you trace out all the days of David from that point forward, the sword never did depart from his house. He had all kinds of trouble in his house. I mean, it was, it was horrible, and, and it was unnecessary, and it's because of that flaw. So he, he engaged in polygamy, he became an adulterer, and then number 12, he committed murder. David wasn't allowed to build the temple because God said to him, you're a bloody man. What did God mean about that? He didn't mean that, oh, he killed people in war, he, he killed Philistines. No, David killed thousands of Philistines and God had no problem with him. David killed one innocent man and God said, you're a bloody man, you can't build the temple for me, your son will do it. Wow. It was kind of like Moses striking the rock. He crossed the line and God had had enough. So, you know, he has issues. He, he commits adultery and then, 
after his moral failure, instead of owning up to it and taking responsibility, he tries to cover his sin with Bathsheba, and he tries to kill her husband Uriah the Hittite so his sin would not be found out. You know, this is the nature of sin. You, you get involved and you, you, you make trouble for yourself, and then instead of repenting, instead of coming clean, what well, we keep digging and the hole gets deeper. I mean, he, he takes Uriah and he, he calls him home uh, from the battle and he tries to get him drunk and he tries to get him to lay with his wife, but Uriah won't do it. He says, no, my, my, you know, the soldiers are out there. The Ark of the Covenant's out there. How can I go in and be with my wife when my men are in the field? This guy's an honorable man. So what does David do? Does his heart convict him and he repents? No, he tells his commanders to, to send Uriah out and withdraw your troops so that he's in the hottest part of the battle and then pull back so he's alone and he'll be killed. And they do it. His own men, his own commanders betray him to cover the king's sin. And Uriah's killed. And David's a murderer. So David had his flaws. And they're not little flaws, they're big flaws. Number 13 was another flaw of David. David was not a diligent father. He was distracted by a lot of things. He didn't discipline his children. He didn't set things straight in his house. He let things go too far, and they got ugly. He has a son that rapes his daughter, and he does nothing about it. Can you, can you think about this poor girl? She's raped by this, this brother. He's twisted. He, he desires her. He, he, he does this thing to his sister, and David acts as if it doesn't even happen. That's not right. Then his son Absalom does do something about it and kills him. And David what? David punishes Absalom and drives him away and banishes him. That's not right either. Dad, you didn't do what you were supposed to do and your son had to take it into his own hands and that's your fault. And now you punish the son who avenged this woman who was raped, which was a capital, that was a capital punishment in Israel. If you did that, you, you were, they would put you to death. None of this, you know, you can do it 10 times and have a rap sheet five feet long and you go to jail and you got rights and you lift weights and watch HBO. No, back in the day, you did that, you were done. So his son is driven away, and that's not right. He doesn't discipline Absalom when he finally lets him come back, and Absalom becomes rebellious and subversive, and he's trying to woo the people's hearts away from David to undermine his kingdom. Absalom eventually sleeps with his father's concubine, more sexual sin passed down from father to son. He sleeps with his concubines in the sight of Israel, and he tries to take his father's kingdom away by taking some of his men and attacking him. And in that battle, Absalom dies. And all of this is because David was not a diligent father. Having said all that, and you are quiet and you look like a flashbang just went off in here. I got to tell the truth in church, right? Well, just tell us the good things about David. Well, there's they're good and there's things that are not good. And it's the whole story. But number 14 is this. Having said all that, David was still Israel's greatest king. Every human is flawed. We just covered some of David's flaws, and they're ugly, and they're lines that none of us should ever cross. But warts and all, David is still undoubtedly Israel's greatest king. We don't put people on pedestals, but we do well to note and celebrate 
and emulate the things that God affirms in those who please him. Now, as king, David pointed the people towards the Lord. David modeled worship for them. David modeled repentance for them, even from grievous sin. He was a psalmist. He was a worshiper. He was a prayer warrior. He set the spiritual bar for the nation for decades to come. He was a humble man many times, admitting failure, eventually repenting of his sin. He set a good example for Israel and for us in the fact that he was willing to be broken and contrite before the Lord, to cry out to the Lord, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. He was passionate. He was courageous. He had great faith, and he made Israel a respectable nation. And because of that, number 15, David is affirmed by God. In the final analysis, all the things he did and didn't do, all his excesses and all his failures, it comes down to this. God said about David, he is a man after my own heart. None of us are perfect. And we don't have to be. Because God can use us and affirm us, not if we have a perfect track record and a perfect performance, but he can affirm us if we have a heart that's after his. Jesse never affirmed his son, David. He ignored him, and he left him out in the field, and the prophet had to send for him. Saul never affirmed David. He was a jealous king, and he tried to kill David on several occasions. Nathan the prophet had to speak stern words of judgment over David to bring him to repentance. But in the final analysis, God felt that David was a man after his own heart from the beginning to the end of his life. 1 Samuel 13, 4. But now thy kingdom shall not continue, is what he said to Saul. The Lord has sought him a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be captain over his people, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord has commanded you. One was disobedient, one was obedient. Both were flawed, but one was a man after God's own heart. Let's bow our heads tonight. Father, I pray that this unvarnished study of David would give us pause to realize that, Father, even if we're God's choice, even if we're anointed, even if we have a good start, even if we're humble, even if we're worshipers, we still have the potential to sin. Father, help us to stay close to Jesus, to not give ourselves license, to not get spiritually lazy like David did, to quit going out to battle and to stay home and get in trouble. Father, help us to be busy doing your will so we have no time for indiscretion. But Father, when we sin and, and when we blow it, I pray, Lord God, that we'd be humble enough to repent and find a place of repentance and allow you to bring restoration. Father, that we would truly be people who are after your heart because it's pleasing to you. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Give him praise tonight.